morning, everybody. Welcome, everybody. Second floor TJ of the uh, first half of 2016. We have a great pleasure of having Duncan here today. And I don't want to take too much of his time introducing him, so most of you guys know him. Uh, and his biggest asset to us is that he's a great thinker. And we're going to let him now do the thinking and share his wise thoughts with us. Thanks so much. Wise thoughts. Oh, <laughs> that sounds lovely. I actually now want to listen to me talk. So that's, okay, so I want to I talk about hijacking minds, which is what happens all over the place. So I want to start with something, something a friend shared um, on Facebook a while ago. Uh, it was an article, and it, uh, this is, I'm just going to read a bit of it. Uh, Suez is the place. Egypt's Antiquities Ministry announced that a team of underwater archaeologists had discovered the remains of a large Egyptian army from the 14th century BC at the bottom of the Gulf of Suez, um, 1.5 kilometers offshore from the modern city of Ras Garib. The scientists, led by Professor Abdel Mohammed Gader, and associated with Cairo University's Faculty of Archaeology, have already discovered a total of more than 400 different skeletons, as well as hundreds of weapons and pieces of armor. Also, the remains of two war chariots scattered over an area of approximately 200 square meters. Many clues on the site have brought Professor Garda and his team to conclude that the bodies could be linked to the famous episode in Exodus. First of all, the ancient soldiers seem to have died on dry ground since no traces of boats or ships have been found in the area. The positions of the bodies and the fact that they were stuck in a vast quantity of clay and rock implies that they could have died in a mudslide or tidal wave. It's quite impressive for something that's a work of total fiction. Um, what, what I, so I read this thing on, on, on f that my friend posted and my at the risk of exposing the degree to which I'm skeptical, my first response was, I don't think so. This sounds a bit too good to be true. But the weird thing is this article was posted on 1,800 sites, and on one of them I found that the original source was a website called the World News Daily Report. And there's at least one word too many in that title. Uh, it's a parody site, and they're, they're very fond, especially of duping Christians. But what I noticed is, is how many shares, the friend of mine who shared this on Facebook, how many shares he got. And, and it raises this question of, of what makes a thing persuasive to some, and then not to others. I'm going to begin to, to answer this. How does persuasion work? So a while ago, I, I did a talk on mob gods. Some of you may have been there. And I was looking at mass manipulation, like, like the way that mass crowds operate. And especially, I was looking through the lens of mimetic theory. In this talk, I want to do something slightly different. I want to kind of have a look at, at a view from the ground in a way. I want to focus on a few of the elements of persuasion that allow minds to be hijacked. Um, and my main framework for thinking through this is rhetorical theory. So this is something that dates back to the ancient Greeks, and especially uh, we pay specific attention to a guy named Aristotle, known in England as Harry Stottle. Uh, a nice metaphor for, for persuasion is Christopher Nolan's movie Inception. Who of you have seen that? Okay, so there are a few movies like, uh, that, that deal with this idea of implanting ideas, incepting ideas is, is the way that Christopher Nolan's movie presents it. So in this film, there's this, this idea that, that ideas can be planted a little, a little bit like seeds in the mind. You use what they call dream heist technology. So you hijack someone's dream. This movie, believe it or not, for those of you who have not seen it, I'm explaining it now, and it's probably sounding a bit wacky, but it's actually amazing. And so they use dream heist technology, and they implant ideas. Well, the, the whole film is about the implanting of, of one idea. And this idea is supposed to change how the person thinks and behaves. 
but it has to be a seed that grows. And, and in the film, right in the beginning, there's, a, there's the question of whether inception is really possible. And one of the characters says, absolutely not, because you can always trace the genesis of the idea. And so it's uh, the one character, Arthur, uses this, the question of, if I say, don't think of an elephant, what's happening in your brain? You're thinking of an elephant in relation to what you're trying to avoid, like the elephant that you're trying to, the elephant in the room, actually, that you're not trying to think of. Uh, so you're always aware, well, in the film it says, you're always aware of the genesis of the idea. But this is not always true, is it? Uh, like daily life is is enough proof of this. So there's a guy named Nathan Anderson who wrote in a, a an essay in a book called Inception and Philosophy. There are two such books, but Nathan Anderson wrote for one of them. He said it's easy to deliver ideas. It's done all the time without the need of any kind of dream heist technology. Just words and willing ears. To make them stick requires either indoctrination through repetition and persuasion or the long, painstaking process of education. So you're all here to have ideas, I hope, planted in your, in your mind. So, so persuasion is actually really easy. What I would say, I would go further. Nathan Anderson, is, he talks about this idea that persuasion is in words and in hearing. I would say persuasion is in everything. Everything has the potential to persuade you. A table persuades you of a specific style of design or a chair or, you know, a building, teapots. The way people talk, uh, just their, their style of talking, handwriting has a persuasive force. Uh, culture has a persuasive force. Everything in our world has a persuasive kind of energy. So just being in a context is actually enough to persuade you. Just being present to it is that you're already setting yourself up for persuasion. So the most uh, in effective forms of persuasion involve, in, 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 well, in persuasion as in inception, involve identification and trivial repetition. Identification meaning you, fit, you feel like you're, you fit into a context. You're already on the same page. Actually, that's a good metaphor for persuasion. You're already on the same page as whatever the communicator, wherever the communicator is. Generally, if you, that's one of the reasons why we get educated in increments. Because giving, giving a little kid some very advanced Heideggerian philosophy, there's going to be a little bit of a gap. Because obviously the kid knows way more than Heidegger. <laughs> So there are different degrees of persuasion. I would even say that there's a kind of continuum between persuasion and coercion. So I'm going to give you a few examples. I would say that maybe this depends on, on how much a person's freedom is accounted for. If there's more freedom for the individual who is being persuaded, then that would be persuasion. If there's less freedom, freedom can never completely, I think, be taken away uh, but something like being held at gunpoint, that would be coercion. The person can still choose not to comply, but the window of freedom is incredibly narrow there. Okay, so I would say there are, ge there are gentler forms of persuasion, like dialogue or education. Uh, although you could say that there's a surreptitious thing going on even in education. The, um, stronger forms of persuasion, like traffic rules, if you don't comply... Terrible things can happen. Hypnosis would be quite a strong form of persuasion. Anyway, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but I don't plan to. Uh, social behavioral constructs, just uh, which we mentioned last week, this idea of, of people performing specific behaviors in accordance with social constructs. Like in this, in this specific setting, not randomly jumping up and yelling at people. Uh, psychic manipulation, which sounds actually way way cooler than it really is. It basically implies in social, social theory that the idea that, that very few choices are provided as if they are the only choices. A good example of this is American politics. Democrat or Republican. As if you can only choose to be one of those. And then you're basically choosing between 
liberal or conservative. These are false choices. They're not really choices, but there's a kind of manipulation there. And then coercion would be things like gunpoint, <coughs> coffee, and cell phone contracts. So what, what all of these things have in common is that persuasion works on incentives. A way of understanding this is to use the proverbial carrot or the stick, right? So there's heaven or there's hell. There's something, there, there are positive forms of persuasion. They, they, they move you in a, they're positive motivators. And then there are negative motivators. These are, not, these are always going to be present, right? In every, every decision, there's going to be a, a balance of the carrot and the stick. So in another way, you could say that all persuasion hinges on appeal. What is appealing on appeals themselves? So understanding persuasion could seem like a really simple thing to do. All you have to do is figure out what's appealing to people and then work with that. But this is actually where things get really complicated because we have different tastes. What appeals to one person does not appeal to another. That's just life. You'll notice how small the crowd here is because waking up really early on a Friday morning does not appeal to some people. And to others, they think, well, let's go and think. It's not the majority of the country that is doing this, or the world, in fact, I think. Uh, so, in another way, though, you can say that there are great similarities in people, and these are the things that persuasion is working with. What I would say is that there is one thing at the center of all persuasion. It is flattery. You want to find something that is going to be persuasive to someone, figure out if it's flattering them in some way. So I'm going to read you a, a quote by, this is from Kenneth Burke. He's got a book called The Rhetoric of Motives, which is a fascinating read. He says, you persuade a man only insofar as you can talk his language by speech, gesture, tonality, order, image, attitude, idea, and in this process, you will be identifying your ways with his. So I've mentioned this idea of identification. This is the center of all persuasion, being on the same page. Persuasion by flattery. Then he goes on. Persuasion by flattery is but a special case of persuasion in general. But flattery can safely serve as our paradigm if we systematically widen its meaning to see behind it the conditions of identification or consubstantiality in general. I know, consubstantiality. Uh, sharing a substance. It's actually a theological term, which is kind of interesting. So, flattery is our paradigm. What is appealing? That's the, the one question. The other, the way of asking it, well, what is appealing is, is going to be in some way involving some form of flattery. So an, an example I'm thinking of is there was a Mitsubishi print ad and it was a topographical map of a, a piece of land but the land looked, it looked like two halves of a brain so it was, uh, looked like a brain. Um, and on the ad it said, it's got the little Mitsubishi Pajero at the bottom, it says, most people only use a small percentage of its abilities referring to the brain, but also the car. And then it finishes with, you are not like most people. But who are they speaking to? So it's very, and it's very simple. This is very blatant, but all, all persuasion involves flattery. All of it. Maybe there are exceptions. Maybe we can talk about those later, but I don't know. I, I think a huge... Uh, part of it is it involves flattery. So flattery is the model appeal of all persuasion. And all other appeals can fit into this one. And this is where we turn to Aristotle. So what Aristotle did is he figured out that there were three dominant appeals that are present in all rhetoric. And I call them the three musketeers. Uh, ethos, pathos, and logos. <laughs> because they sound a little bit like orthos. Is it pathos? And Aramis, who's the second? I can't remember the second one. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so ethos, pathos, and logos. Well, I'm going to look at these individually, but they all work together in any piece of rhetoric. You can, you can pretty much notice this. 
to work, these appeals need to be inherent in or fit in with the uh, people's current worldview or ideology. In other words, to be successful, rhetoric or persuasion, so rhetoric is the art of persuasion, just so you, you're clear on that. So rhetoric or persuasion will appeal largely to things that we don't question. It's going to work with what you already believe. That's the, remember, you have to be on the same page in order to get onto a different page. That's how, that's how persuasion works every single time. If this is true, then the people who do not question are in huge trouble because they're not going to notice that the persuasion is working with the things they don't question. They just assume that this is how it is. In fact, that's what ideology is. It's not specific ideas. It's the way we function in the world without ever testing it. So the first one, let's look at ethical proof, which is ethos. So all rhetoric has an ethical proof. It refers, ethos refers primarily to the communicator. So the communicator's ability to persuade is connected to his or her moral habits, authority, and reputation. It seems simple enough. In Aristotle's rhetoric, it's not just the moral habits of the communicator, but also the appearance of the ethical character within what they're communicating. So you're looking at, in a way, communicator on the one hand and communication. They both have to have a certain kind of ethos. And it's really, this is really important. The communicator's ethos is really important when the argument is slightly in doubt. You'll notice this with some people. If you, you have a conversation with them and they say something jarring, which I'm sure never happens to you. But anyway, they say something jarring. You... You're, you're going to go, wait, hang on, I know this person. Well, hopefully you'll do this. It's a very helpful trick to keep relationships going. Um, I know this person. What they've just said seems so offensive. There must be something else going on. What is difficult in the modern age is communication has often been separated from individuals. So most of the communications we're exposed to on a daily basis are mass communication. So we're bombarded with this, but we don't necessarily notice that, oh wait, there's an individual. This is why trolling happens on the internet, because there's a distance that has been exaggerated between the communicator. Trolling is, is where someone is, what? Well, I will explain. I, it's where people deliberately go onto the internet to look for things that they can stir up controversy, and more than controversy, usually hatred. Uh, they get a kick out of, out of bullying people through the internet. But it's because there's a distance, but there's, there's uh, relating to last week's talk, there's, an, there's a lack of empathy there. So that's really important. There are two kinds of ethos. The one is invented ethos, and the other one is situated. So invented ethos refers to the invention of a character suitable for the occasion. So brands invent an ethos largely. Celebrities have malleable identities uh, depending on the films they're acting and they're inventing an ethos so that the character that they're playing comes off as convincing. Uh, academics writing on a subject. This is actually invented ethos, at least partially. The question is, have they done their homework? Have they done the research? Are they presenting credible research? The same would be of a, of a speaker. Have they done the homework? Is the invented ethos, the argument, is it well formulated? Is there some sense that work has been done to make it convincing? Then situated ethos. This, is, this relies on the audience's knowledge of the character of, an of a communicator. So this is generally something that happens within communities. You know what the person is like. So that their, their ethos, their ethical character is situated. And it's one of the things that... Actually, I'll get to that. It's one of the things that gets, uh, gets manipulated by people opposing uh, the arguments of others. So, for example, you introduce a speaker by mentioning their credentials. This is uh, commonly done in academic circles. So you mention their credentials, you mention where they studied, their qualifications... And this is a way of 
manufacturing, in a way, situated ethos. Because if one community is hearing a speaker they've never met before, it's helpful to get a sense that, wait, they have a, they have a story, they have a history, and they are credible in their community. And that's partly the function of master's degrees and PhDs, or degrees, in fact, is that the, the um, situated ethos is ratified by the system, the university system. So everyone who wants to go all anarchic and, and take away all of those things, well, there is a place for it. I'm not saying it's the whole um, thing, but it's, it's important. So what, what is important here is that there is something called rhetorical distance. This is going to profoundly affect the way that we perceive an argument to be persuasive or not. So rhetorical distance, there are two kinds of distance. Sorry, I know this is a bit technical and I'll get to some concrete application in a bit. So you would, you would say the, the one is a kind of intimate distance. It tries to build trust in a personal way. So there's always distance, right? That's the point. There's, there's always a distance between you and the communicator. But the intimate distance is where there is trust that is built in a personal way, in an empathic way. It's, it's got a closer sense of identification, your friends. And so there's a dialogue that is possible. And in, in personal circumstances, there is much more persuasive potential if you are closer related to the person. You're, you have an intimate relationship of some kind. It means persuasion is heightened. So th for most of us, we know like the, our friends, our partners, those are the people that have the most persuasive clout in our lives. But then there is formal distance. This is where trust is intellectual. So ethos is being an ethical category. We're dealing with trust. And in formal distance, trust is intellectual. It's less about the, that empathic uh, connection. It's, it's more about sort of knowing, oh, okay, that person has expertise in this area. When Peter Hayne speaks on economics, all of us go quiet <laughs> and understand that we're not the expert. That's part of the function of having that, that intellectual trust. There's, there is a bit of a personal relationship because we've got this community, but there's also a little bit of a formal distance that is established. So that, does that make some sense? Um, it works in, in politics a lot of the time. You, the, there's always this massive formal distance. Now, with ethos, one of the number one ways to try and interrupt the ethos of a person is through what is known as an ad hominem. You all, all know this. To the man, the, the translation of that Latin. It's a common argument against the ethos of the person. It's not... Often, very, an ad hominem, by definition, does not look at the argument. It attacks the character. Politics. How often do you... Polit, politicians are not going, well, I see problems with your policies. There is that there. But most often, the arguments stay at the level of the three-year-old insult you smell. It's not really thoughtful and, wait, let's... Let's, let's, get on, let's sit down at a table and talk and get on the same page. It's actually not that, because it's not about persuading everyone to be on the same page. In politics, it's let's persuade people that our party needs to win. It's a different form of uh, manipulation. And ad hominem is often unfair, but effective because... <laughs> It appeals to the ego, in other words, the self-righteousness or the point of identification of the audience. It appeals to their egos, like if you're a DA supporter and, the D, uh, and Musi gives a fantastic speech and you go, yes, DA should win. But in that speech, there's been a bit of the ANC, which, by the way, all the political parties do. It's just part of their, the way they function. The ANC, the EFF is really good at like their whole, their whole political regime is built on scapegoating the ANC. It's not very clever uh, from, a, from an intellectual perspective, but it's very clever rhetorically. Okay, so that's ethos. Then the second appeal is pathos, which is, I kind of enjoy calling it this, this is pathetic proof. <laughs> pathos is as in emotion. So this, this refers, like ethos is primarily the communicator, pathos is primarily 
the emotional position of the audience. It's the audience's state of mind. So it appeals to emotion and experience. So uh, Aristotle said there are all these emotions tend to be paired. So you get anger and calm. So opposites, love, hate, fear, confidence, shame, shamelessness, compassion, indifference, pity, indignation, envy, emulation, joy, sorrow, hope, despair, and so on. So you, all these opposites. And the effectiveness of pathetic proof, like appealing to the emotional state of the audience, depends very much on whether you can get onto the audience's page in terms of their emotional uh, feelings. Um, so this is, that's a tautology. Anyway, this is tricky and it tends to involve some kind of audience testing. So one of the rhetorical tools used for getting people on the same page is something that is called NRJA. It also, it's a Greek word this time. Didn't know that I was throwing so much Greek and Latin into my talk. Anyway, NRJA is this idea of creating a vivid picture, either through speech or through images, whatever you're using, to appeal to the audience. So an example of NRJA is realism in movies. When you watch a movie and your CG dinosaur is a little bit clunky, immediately separates you from the persuasion. You're no longer persuaded that that dinosaur is... There are B-movies with clunky dinosaurs, believe it or not. Actually, just watch the, uh, George Lucas's uh, episodes 1, 2, and 3 of Star Wars, and just you can see an example of really bad NRJ. It's like, it just doesn't convince. So then we come to Logos. This is logical proof. Proof by reason. This generally refers to the argument itself. In, it, it deals with reasonability or probability. So there, in terms of rhetoric, we're not looking generally at things we can prove scientifically. We're looking at, although science will be used for rhetoric, for sure. But you're looking more at a sort of, how is this, is this probable? Is this reasonable? In rhetoric, Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, reasonability has less weight than we think it does. Uh, it's, pathos is much more significant for rhetoric than ethos and logos. People's, people generally, crowds especially, are much more drawn in by powerful emotional experiences than by, by ethics or by logic, which is really alarming. And it, there are reasons why certain churches grow bigger than others. I'm, I'm not saying it's got anything to do with reasonability. Uh, there are different kinds of reasoning. You can look at that deductive, inductive, uh, abductive, which sounds like alien abduction. Chesterton's got this wonderful point on logic. He says, the interesting thing with logic is that logic itself re is reliant on truth. It is not a proof of truth. So he says you can, you can take a proposition... Like, a per one person has three ears. We know it's a false proposition, but anyway. So, one person has three ears, unless someone really does, but anyway. Therefore, two people will have six, and three will have nine, etc. It's perfectly logical, but false. So, Chesterton has this idea that you cannot find truth with logic until you have found truth without it. I think it's a good thing. He's basically getting to the idea that, that our persuasion is going to rely on, the direct, on a direct experience rather than just on a process of reasoning. So in summary, per persuasion relies on flattery. Flattery is sustained or propelled forward by specific appeals. And generally speaking, those are ethical appeals, emotional appeals, and then logical appeals. So what does this process look like? What does this persuasive process look like? So the main idea that I'd work with is that persuasion means working with where people already are and then taking them where you want to go. Starting on one page and then taking them to the next page. In a way you could argue that this is an agree you, you work with agreement in order to move to agreement on something else. You will find that you are not persuasive when you forget the first agreement. I know this because I have occasionally jumped in my own thinking at TGIF a little bit too far or a little bit too quickly, and this happens at talks, and I haven't been able to follow all the steps. 
And that's something that will happen. So when you experience a gap in persuasion, it's possible that the person is talking nonsense. That's really true. But it's also possible that you haven't been able to follow every step that they've gone through. Uh, so it's just worth uh, looking at. So let's, let's take this out of the abstract. I've given you this framework. Let's look at a specific example of persuasion. And I want to use an example, uh, a guy named Paul Offit, who's a medical doctor. He writes about, he's got a book called, Do You Believe in Magic? The Sense and Nonsense of Alternative Medicine. And I've deliber deliberately picked a topic that, that uh, is applicable to winter, uh, because vitamin C is the, is the issue at hand. Okay, so he wants to change the way you think about vitamin C. There you go. Um, or if for some of you, or confirm it, depending on what you knew before. Because that's also part of it. Uh, so the point of flattery, the, ident the point of identification or flattery in Offit's book is twofold. Most of us, the first one is most of us want to be healthy. So there's, that, there's a kind of flattery. We, you want to be healthy, right? Um, or if you're sick, if you have a cold, you should work towards being well. That's part of the, so the first point of identification or flattery. Two, it is clever to do, do whatever you can to get well. In other words, you are clever. Do you feel your ego going, yes, ah, <laughs> I relish my own cleverness. So you, your ego is, is appealed to. It's, uh, this is very subtle. This is not overt. And that's the trouble with, uh, with flattery is it's most often not overt. I'm going to just point out that this is already ideologically problematic. The, the issue of health is not neutral. It's not neutral at all. Vera, when she spoke about, about food and, and the theology of food, hinted at the fact that, that even nutrition is not a neutral question. It's an ideological question. So there's other stuff. But I'm not, I'm not going into that. I'm looking at the rhetoric of, of what Paul Offit is doing. So I want to use... An example, there is a, an ad for vitamin water uh, made a while ago. I never saw it here, but I, I saw an image of it on the internet. And it said, flu shots are so last year, vitamin water. Because obviously, if you want to stay healthy, you should take vitamins. And this is a nice, tasty way to do it. Uh, Paul Offit is going to go a different route. So I'm going to read this quite a long bit. When people don't get enough vitamins, they suffer diseases such as beriberi, I'd never, pellagra, scurvy, and rickets caused by deficiencies, deficiencies of vitamins B1, B3, C, and D, respectively. The problem with most vitamins is that they aren't made inside the body and they're available only in foods, foods or supplements. So the question isn't, do people need vitamins? They do. The real questions are how much do they need? Do they get enough in their foods? And nutrition experts and vitamin manufacturers, notice this, there's a split there. Nutrition experts and vitamin manufacturers are split on the answers to those questions. Nutrition experts argue that all people need is a recommended daily allowance, typically found in a routine diet, not in supplements. Industry representatives argue that foods don't contain enough vitamins and that larger quantities are needed. Fortunately, many excellent studies have been done to resolve this issue. Aren't you excited about the possibilities? So, Paul Offit then introduces a guy named Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling was a, quite a remarkable character. He won the Nobel, Nobel Prize twice, one for peace and one for his work in sciences. He won a National Academy of Science medal, a medal for merit, which was awarded by the President of the United States. And he got honorary doctorates from three institutions, Cambridge, London, and Paris. Time, magazine's, uh, named, Time magazine named him Man of the Year 1961. Linus Pauling. You're going to hate this guy by the end of this talk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, in 1966... Pauling was convinced by a biochemist named Erwin Stone that he should take 300 milligrams of vitamin C daily and that this would allow him, then 65 years old, to live another 25 years or longer. 
1970, Pauling published a book called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. Urged, he urged readers to take 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C daily, which is 50 times the recommended daily allowance, with the promise that this would eradicate the common cold completely within a few years. The book became a bestseller, and vitamin C supplement sales went through the roof. Sound familiar? But scientists were not so enthusiastic. In fact, there was a study done in 1942. This is nearly 30 years before Pauling's book came out. And the study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It read, and I'm quoting from it, Under the conditions of this controlled study in which 980 colds were treated, there is no indication that vitamin C alone and antihistamine alone or vitamin C plus an antihistamine have any important effect on the durational or severity of infections of the upper respiratory tract. 1942, they knew this. <laughs> Another study done at the University of Maryland gave 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C every day for three weeks to 11 volunteers, plus, a plus uh, it's 110 volunteers, I think, um, I've made a mistake. It was about 110 volunteers and then uh, placebo to 10 others and infected all with colds. And vitamin C made no difference. Another study done at the University of Toronto, 3,500 volunteers were involved in a similar study, one group getting 2,000 milligrams daily with a con control group getting a placebo. No effect. Vitamin C made no difference. In 2002, a similar study was done in the Netherlands with 600 volunteers. Vitamin C made no difference. I've used a rhetorical device called repetition. It's quite helpful. You, just, you actually repeat what you're saying. Eventually, the, the point sinks in. Consequence. A number of authorities, appeal to authority, by the way, very helpful in rhetoric. You're like, uh, the authority, the Bible. Oh. Um, it's not mentioned in the Bible. Vitamin C is not mentioned in the Bible. Just in case you were checking. Wine is mentioned in the Bible. Wine is mentioned. Wine. Wine is, and it's medicine. Book of Timothy, yeah. It's an antioxidant. There's a whole bunch of myths about antioxidants too. Although, I let me disclaimer this, I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm looking at Paul Offit's argument, not mine. Okay, so the FDA, the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, the American Dietic Association, the Center of Human Nutrition at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, not a short name, Department of Health and Human Services, none of these recommend supplemental vitamin C for the prevention and treatment of colds. Prevention and treatment of colds. Not necessary. You'll notice that our medical aides do not pay for vitamin C supplements. Interesting. Linus Pauling was not convinced by science, despite being a scientist. In fact, he kept on promoting vitamin C and then upped the ante and said, no, it, it not only cures colds, it cures cancer. Uh, and it would eventually help, he said, claimed, it would help Americans to live to be much older 110 years at first, and then later they would be reaching ages of about 150. The study done at the Mayo, then someone at the Mayo Clinic, which is a, a, an unfortunate name, but uh, they tested this cancer cure theory, found that vitamin C made no difference to symptoms or mortality. Subsequent studies confirmed these findings. Pauling, though, was not convinced. He then claimed that vitamin C should be taken with large doses of other vitamins and that vitamin supplements will eventually help to cure every disease known to man. And then I quote from Paul Offit. He says, in a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1994, 29,000 Finnish men, all smokers, had been given a daily vitamin E, beta-carotene, and beta-carotene both or a placebo. The study found that those who had taken beta-carotene for five to eight years were more likely to die from lung cancer or heart disease. 
then, in 2004, a review of 14 randomized trials for the Cochrane database found that the supplemental vitamins of A, C, and E, and beta-carotene, and a mineral selenium taken to prevent intestinal cancers, increased mortality. Also, people who took vitamin C supplements when they had a cold, no difference again. Except, as later studies have shown, an increased likelihood of dying from cancer. And there's a lot more to back this up. In 1980, Linus Pauling was asked, this is after a lot of these studies, so Linus Pauling was asked, does vitamin C have any side effects or long-term damage if, if used in higher quantities? He answered, no. Seven months later, his wife died of stomach cancer. In 1994, Pauling himself died of prostate cancer. That, that's Paul Offit's finish. I, w- I do want to mention this. He was still 93. He was... So Paul Offit doesn't mention that he died of prostate cancer. It was the vitamins. Another useful trick in rhetoric, correlation does not equal causation. It's possible these other studies, there may also be a problem there. I don't know. What we do know is that the hype, and I'm just... Focusing here, because there are other there are other supplements that are good. Okay, you need to go and figure that out. But vitamin C has been hyped up. The theory is, it actually came from an observation. Probably the original chemist Irving Stone. Irving Stone, sorry, he he probably saw well in winter citrus fruit. It must be evolutionarily true that we need more vitamin C in winter. Or, like every other thing that grows in the fields, there's a season for it, just eat it when it's available, whatever it is. Like, but they assumed it had an evolutionary explanation. So, the bad news is that Pauling was wrong. The good news is that the vitamin manufacturing industry is doing really well. It looks like science, but it is not. So, ethos. I'm reporting on Offit's argument, and I'm not that kind of doctor. So there is a situated ethos that's missing from me that he has. So here I am trusting him. And by the way, that's what persuasion involves. You trust all the time. But all of Offit's claims can be fact-checked. That means that invented ethos can be checked. The, the nature of the argument, did he, where did he get his data? All of it can be fact-checked. Pathos, well, how you feel about this right now depends on you, I suppose, and how much you have spent on vitamin supplements. Logos, logos, whatever, the argument is very, this is a very fact-heavy argument. And it checks Pauling's logic against the logic of scientific studies. The scientific studies because of the nature of authority and the processes they go through, they seem, for me, to win. They seem to make much more sense. If you agree with the process, the rhetorical processes that Offit and the studies he's referring to are taking, you will be convinced. The movement from agreement will lead to an agreement with the need to change behavior. Check which vitamin supplements are actually very good. There are very few. Um, if you do not agree with Offit's research, for whatever reason, and Pauling was faced with the actual stuff. He saw the actual scientific research and went, no, I will not believe it, even though I'm a two-time Nobel Prize winning scientist. Okay? The basic me- mechanisms of persuasion tend to remain consistent, whether on a small scale, this is private conversation, or on a large-scale mass manipulation. They rely on identification, are you on the same page, and flattery. Does the communicator tell you that you're wonderful and lovely? And these things operate through very specific appeals, ethos, pathos, logos. The last thought I want to just uh, give to you is the main thing to watch for then, if you bear these identification and flattery, The main thing to watch for then is not the persuasion or the persuader, but yourself. 
if it is flattery that convinces us, then the biggest weapon of any mass manipulation or, or personal manipulation is not, first and foremost, a convincing argument. It is our egos. In fact, our egos will also be the reason, a la Pauling, that we will not be persuaded even by things that are true. We have met the enemy, and he is us, as Walt Kelly has said. And with that, I will finish and open for questions. I know that I've left a lot out here. I've, what do what do I use? The pregnant pause. You could you can. I'm not the best rhetorician. I know this, but but I do I do have these. I'm I'm aware of certain things. Like part of it is is waiting. There's a dialogue always with an audience, and you're always thinking, how can I help the thing to land? How can I help it to sink? So, yeah. Oh my word! This is a very interesting thing. I, I think we have, uh, so I have mentioned ego and it, it has been used pejoratively. There's a negative. I would argue that not all ego is bad. So the, the Jewish conception of ego is that we are born with two aspects of self, the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. So the, 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 the Hara is the, is the selfish impulse and the Hatov is the good impulse. Tov is what God said when everything was good. Tov, tov, tov. This is very cool. Anyway, so there's a, there's a, there are these two things, and we have both of them, and they work in tension and in union. We need the selfish impulse to get things we need. You need to eat, and to be completely selfless would mean you would be constantly giving your food away, which is amazing, but too much selflessness could also be a form of I, I guess a form of nihilism. Uh, too much. Uh, so that's so. So these things. So, so the self, self, self impulse and the selfless impulse. They work in tension. I'd say there are good things about our egos. In fact, according to certain mystics, you need an ego structure in order to be able to transcend it. So the question is: Is is the thing you're doing good? And if it is good, you're trying to appeal to people's best side. I found it so interesting, uh, Rob Boerta, at the beginning of the year, he talked about an ethical, uh, a model for social change that presumed that people work according to self-interest rather than an enlightened state. And I thought that was so insightful because he didn't try to pretend that people are better than what they are. I think that we need to have, in a way, the, the best view of people but also the worst. We have both of these things. People are capable of leaning either way. And we need to figure out how what we're trying to do can help them. We can start on the same page and move them towards something better. And hopefully, and more importantly, move ourselves to something better. So it's a really, and that question, that question of, you know, how do you do this ethically, is the central question in, in all rhetoric. Uh, and it's a question that has to keep coming up no matter what you're doing. Part of what I try to do, I, my students who've heard me talk about this stuff endlessly, uh, I try to enlighten people as to what's going on so that they're less likely to be manipulated by, by things that are actually not good for them. So many questions. We'll start on the left. In Started talking about knowledge. Um, 
such a good insight and you'll notice you'll notice repetition what is repetition functions according to a psychological psychological faculty we have which is called habituation when you start to learn to drive it is piece of cake no put pedal all the wrong things gear lever everywhere don't know what you're doing and now when you drive it's a piece of cake you don't even think about it and that's actually the same, more or less, the same function that is happening through repetition. Through repetition, you get used to things, and so you stop noticing. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. So you stop even noticing the world you live in. And part of awareness or becoming aware is, is actually become, like, noticing that, that thing in you that goes, hmm, hang on, I want this to be true. So maybe I should check it. And I, I would really encourage you to do that with most things. Like, even the, even the good stuff. I want this to be true so badly. So what happens if it isn't? What happens if this is just my ego talking? And maybe the negative side of the ego, to, to be specific. Then. Um, it's actually, what is it? Oh, there's, Zizek talked about this, the C Copernican Revolution. Who was he overturning? <coughs> Copernicus, son, anyway. There's a process by which we try and explain away truth. And it's fundamental to ideology. Is We want to just like, find ways to sweep it. No, no, no. We, science, I mean, science does this with mystical stuff very quickly. It goes, science hasn't explained that yet. Everything will be explained. I'm reluctant to bring that into the world of religion. It, it also uses its own forms of this extensively, and we just need to be aware of that. Very good point. I was thinking that your example of taking a seat, all these um, scientific studies don't prove that Lapidac is that because for that you would need Look, I think, I mean, the, Paul Offit's argument is you should eat healthily. You'll get enough nutrition from healthy eating. <coughs> Don't worry about, like, fueling the vitamin industry. They're, they're doing fine. <laughs> What's interesting is this stuff has come to light, and it hasn't affected. By the way, I've given, I've given, uh, I, I've relayed some of this information to certain people, and I've heard them a few weeks later say oh now i've got a cold let me go and get some vitamin c and and i think it's so interesting because there there is a forgetfulness that happens this is bizarre because our whole culture if you walk into discim you'll notice they don't promote it but it's endlessly available you can get it very easily because they need to make money they don't promote it but they're the culture's fueling it uh linus pauling i think in the end wrote three or four books promoting vitamin C and they were all best sellers how to live in like the one is how to live longer the, that's just and the central claim in that book apparently I haven't read it is 
take vitamin C. So it was a marketing thing. And that's kind of how totalitarian regimes function. They function according to a particular kind of marketing scheme. Hitler's famous line is, or it's from Goebbels, I think, which was, just repeat a lie. Tell a big lie and then repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and people will eventually believe it. Thanks. That is a really good comment. Yeah, thank you. That was brilliant. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I'm actually trying to clarify it, but yeah. <laughs> I think uh, can I, I I think this is where theology becomes profoundly helpful. It is a modernist mistake that 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 the truth of Christianity, for instance, got remodeled in terms of knowing the truth, whereas the central ethos in the Christian faith is not what you know it's how you love and I think love is a profound epistemological category. It is a thing that transforms the way we pursue knowledge even. What is the purpose of this knowledge? Is it to love humanity or not? And I see in a lot of big business, in a lot of uh, mass marketing, like on the, on the vitamin issue, the motivation is not love. So Dane's comment is profoundly insightful. Look at what is, the, is there motivation to genuinely love you? This happens in the way that sugar is manufactured, or it's, it's happened with cigarette manufacturing. It, it happens in the way that churches function even. Even theologies form, get formulated around different categories. Money is one of the big ones. In, or power, for instance, influence, instead of love. So if I think our foundation of truth, and this is kind of what Jesus was getting at, I think where he referred to himself as the truth, and the, the way, the truth, and the life. He... he reconfigured the whole system around relationship. That's what Trinity functions as. So I think there is something in theology that is a phenomenal critique of ideology because it challenges the ground. And it says, look, if your ground is what you know, what you can know amazing things, but it's not enough. There needs to be something beneath that that holds all of reality together. I think that's a, maybe, yeah.
I think I, I'm not trying to promote an absolute skepticism, but I think it's just it's just uh, a kind of because absolute skepticism needs to go one step further and doubt its own doubts. I would say, um, otherwise we're not doubting enough. Um, but I think what I, I'm trying to say is become aware of the and and I think self awareness. Weirdly enough, I think a lot of rhetoric looks at the external, and I want to go. Well, I think the, there's something internal that needs to be dealt with first. I think that's a good place to stop. Yes. Cheers, everyone.